Good evening, it's lovely to see you all. <laughs> so we're, uh, <laughs> sorry for those of you listening online. Um, I'm going to be speaking on restoration tonight. And what does that mean? Well, the world, think, according to the world, restoration means bringing uh, back something that is old, worn out, dilapidated or broken back to its former state. I guess we kind of understand that concept. Now, my family will tell you that I'm quite, that not just my family, lots of you will tell you that I'm quite sad. But one of the things that they'll tell you why I'm quite sad is I watch this TV program called Car SOS. Have any of you ever seen that? You're all just looking really distressed back at me right now. So Car SOS is this program where this, these kind of two guys find someone who has a broken down old car. It's usually a classic or an ancient thing. And a bit like the best kind of X Factor stories or Britain's Got Talent, it's usually this some massive backstory, sob story, something tragic. You know, someone lost a leg or two legs or all their arms and could no longer restore this car. And there's often quite, you know, actually there's often quite sad stories there. And, and, and the family who loved this person think, I'd love for their car to be restored that they wanted to restore one day but never could. And so they take the car away secretly and they do an incredible restoration job on it. I mean, they pour way more into these things than often they're actually valued in. But it's remarkable, and they turn these, and then they surprise them by giving it back. If you're bored on a Saturday morning, Google it. Car SOS. Your life will be transformed. And you too will understand the wonder of restoration. I guess the heart of that program is to find something which is, all, is beyond repair, seemingly. Something which was once loved, once cherished. It may even be slightly cherished, even the state that it's in. But the person who looks at this car and thinks, I can't do anything. And kind of, I suppose, gives up at that point. And what it needs is outside help, intervention and grace and kind of intercession, interceding on behalf to bring something about. That's what happens in that story. And there's elements of that in kind of biblical restoration. But I would suggest that restoration, according to the heart and the word of God, is something so much more than worldly restoration. The world says that restoration is putting it back to the state it was in, back to its original state. But the biblical definition of restoration is so much more. I think it means putting something back into a state that was even better than before, but what was all, always planned. This glorious blueprint that probably has never been seen in a person's life. It's about transforming someone's whole life, not just making them better, but actually putting them to what they were always supposed to be within God's original design. So, we're going to think about that tonight, and we're going to look at um, particularly one Bible passage um, that will be very familiar to us. I want to ask you this question. Has anyone here ever failed Jesus quite badly? <laughs> Victoria's hand went straight up. She also elbowed her husband very strongly. You know? She didn't, she didn't. You know, we, 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 have, we all have, haven't we? I mean, the truth is we all fail Jesus daily, moment by moment. There are some catastrophic moments that we can look back on. Some of them we might be able to laugh about. But some of them will bring us terrible shame and embarrassment and a sense of, oh my goodness. Some of those we may feel that God's kind of remedied and we've, 
But there may be some things lurking there where we just feel, I've maybe said sorry for it, but you know, it's still a shadow that haunts me. It's still something that affects me, it affects the way I think, it affects the way I act, the words that I say, the way I interact with others. It kind of has shadows that just don't ever quite leave. John the Apostle um, said this in 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, the reality is we as Christians, if you have a pulse, you will mess up. You'll get things wrong. There may be small things, there may be big things. There may be things that you feel like are able to get over. But as I said, there may be things that seem irredeemable almost. They've so scarred you and shaped you that actually you've become something different because of this thing that's happened to you. And you have this nagging feeling that maybe even though Jesus has forgiven you and it's sort of covered, the remnant and the ghost of it is still there. After everything Jesus gave for us, we can feel deflated that actually our return to him is so far short of perhaps what will be expected. And then this nagging feeling, you know, when Hayden said if Jesus came into the room right now, some of us would have thought, oh no. I've been in meetings where there have been prophets, and, and, and I don't say that lightly, I mean like proper prophets. Prophets who will look at you and go, hi, your name's Sheila, you've got a cat with three legs called Lucky, and you live at 22, the high street. Now obviously if they said that to me, they wouldn't be a prophet. But they're able to put, you know, absolutely can can absolutely speak that and then say, and this is what the Lord is saying to you. It's not like a party trick, but they do it to help you realise that actually this person can hear from God very clearly. I've been in rooms with people like that. And I have to be honest, when I've been in leadership conferences and places with prophets like that, they are the last person I want to make eye contact with. They are the last person I want to sit down and have a coffee with because I know the stuff that's in my life. And even though we know that God knows the stuff in my life, when there's someone who might be able to see it too, it's terrifying. The truth is we can so often feel like we've let God down. There's areas of our lives, these nagging things. And if Jesus did come into the room, like Hayden said, would he really want to hang out with me? If you've ever experienced that feeling, then John 21, I would suggest, is a passage for you. If anyone can say they know what it is to fall from grace, to really mess it up, it's the Apostle Peter. Peter, the one who proclaimed most loudly of his unfallible loyalty to Jesus. Even if everyone else abandons you, Lord, I obviously wouldn't. I'll die for you. I'll give my everything for you. I couldn't leave you, Lord. And of course he became the one, as we know, who openly then denied Jesus in front of all those witnesses so soon afterwards. Let me just read that account very briefly. We won't bother putting this on the screen, but I'll read it to you from Luke 22, 54 to 62. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. See, even then there's this tug. He wants to be near Jesus. He wants to be close, but he's scared. He's struggling. He doesn't want people to really know, but there's this pull towards Jesus, but he's still scared. And when some, someone there kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat with them. A servant girl saw him there, seated in a firelight. She looked closely at him. That must have been a disconcerting moment. He's kind of trying to look away, not make eye contact. 
And she said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. I mean, that must have been an awful moment, wasn't it? But let's be honest, we've probably all been there. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Yeah, it's a painful, painful moment. He weeps bitterly. It's a soul-destroying moment for Peter. Something inside him, I think, probably died at that moment. Just the overwhelming shame and the pain and the scorn. And let's be honest, it isn't just himself. There's the enemy laughing at him and pointing at him and condemning him. It would have been a horrible, horrible thing. Now, we know the story. Those of us that are part of the church family, if you've read the Bible, we know Jesus comes back from the dead and Jesus appears to the disciples. He appears, first of all, to Mary. Mary Magdalene is aware of what's happened. She goes back to report to the disciples and they're not quite sure what to make of it. Um, But then Jesus appears to them in the upper room. We're told that, that Peter's present with the other disciples. Jesus appears to them. We don't know how Peter felt. Nothing is mentioned of his kind of failure. Then he comes back again when Thomas is there, because Thomas wasn't there um, the first time. Jesus comes back and says, Thomas, look, look, you can put your hands in my wounds. Again, Peter was there, but did he shrink to the back of the room? Did he say anything? We're not told. We can't imagine quite what happened. And then we come to the passage that I want to look at. I wonder if chapter 21 that we're about to see in a minute and read is there because it so powerfully encapsulates the lingering feelings of failure that I think Peter must have still carried. He knew Jesus was resurrected. He knew that somehow he was part of the plan. But you know what? I think inside he still thought, I've blown it. You know, I was was so close. I was so one of the in crowd. I told Jesus that I'd die for him. And of course now he's called me out. He knows what I really like. And although he was there... And although he'd seen the resurrected Jesus and must have been so glad about that, I'm sure he carried so much shame and pain and sense of failure and regret and all those things. So this chapter in John is redemption for Peter, but it's restoration for him. Jesus comes in his last recorded visit in John to the disciples and singles out Peter. And the words he speaks change everything. Victoria, can you come and read that passage to us? Thank you. We're going to put it up on the screen, I think, as well. Thanks, uh, Mark. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. 
I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net out on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the, the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, 
I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the right Thanks, Victoria. So first is kind of one to three, really. Um, you, you can just pitch this. Peter doesn't really know when Jesus is going to appear. He's told him to kind of wait, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. But they kind of had no clarity about what was going to happen next. Where was Jesus going to arrive? What would that look like? Where would they be sent? And I, do you know, I suspect Peter had begun to think, maybe I've blown it. You know, I was part of the in crowd. We were going to do all these ventures for God's kingdom. Jesus was going to use me. I've messed up so badly. Maybe my part in God's plan has been invalidated. And although I guess Jesus loves me and has forgiven me, maybe this is kind of the end of the story and I'm not worthy to be used by God anymore. I wonder if anyone here feels like that. You know God loves you. You know he's forgiven you. You know he sort of has plans for you, sort of. But maybe the things that you'd longed for or the hopes you'd had for your life or for the future or for other things, maybe they just feel a bit like lost now and you'll have to settle for something else that will be okay but maybe not the best. It's really interesting, isn't it, that it was on a shore that Jesus first called Peter and those first disciples and he first said, follow me. Now three years later, the other side of the resurrection, and the disciples find themselves back on a shore again. I think sometimes you try and go back to, you go home, don't you, to try and make sense of your life. You go back to what you know, what's sort of certain, or what you're used to, to try and make sense. You go back to doing what you've always done, and that's exactly what Peter does. He doesn't know what else to do, so like a bloke, he goes, well, I'm going fishing because he knows he can do that at least. That was was his old life, fishing, so I'll just go back to doing that. It's what we so often do. So the other disciples, again, not knowing quite what to do, and Peter's big mouth, well, they agree and they get into the boat with him and they fish all night and do not catch a single thing. The truth is we we often go back to what we think we know at times of pressure or stress to kind of bring a sense of comfort or... Refreshment for us, so he goes back to fishing. But you know, once you've turned your life over to Jesus and moved on from things, and you go back looking for the fruitfulness that you used to think you had in a certain area, in a certain way of living, or a certain place, or that fruitfulness just isn't quite there anymore because the truth is, Jesus has changed you. And it's like going fishing with a cricket bat for Peter. He hasn't got a clue what he's doing and it just does not work anymore. It's kind of funny. Part of that, I think, is because, well, he's changed. He's a different person. People say home is where your heart is. And the truth is, I think for Peter, his heart wasn't really in fishing anymore. He'd been changed by meeting Jesus. He'd, he'd got a bigger picture of what he was called to. He'd got a bigger picture of the road that lay ahead of him. And now that kind of was crumbling because he'd really messed up or it felt like he'd really messed up. So his heart wasn't really in anything anymore. The truth is, I think he probably felt a little bit lost and was just sort of getting through. So here they are, empty-handed after a whole night's fishing. And then in the dawning of light, they hear this voice from the shore calling them, giving them fishing tips. 
which if you're a bloke who's been fishing all night, I'm guessing didn't go down too well. You know, it's like when you're lost and someone offers to tell you the way to go and you kind of go, I know how to do this. I know the journey. I'm talking about our spouses because we as men are often very proud and sinful. I can't imagine the fishermen were delighted when this voice shouts to them, do you know what you need to do <laughs> is chuck the net the other side of the boat. I can't imagine they go, hmm, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's probably going to work. But for whatever reason, maybe because they were just really cheesed off with pizza and they were really cheesed off, for whatever reason, these professional fishermen who should know what they were doing and hadn't caught anything, take the advice of a landlubber and do chuck the net over the other side. And of course we know instantly there's this incredible miracle. All the fish around the sea that seem to leap into this net. Have you ever wondered why it says the specific number 153 fish? You can actually read, there's loads of reasons people have argued. Theologians through the ages, including St. Augustus and lots of other ones, have come up with loads and loads of reasons. And they're quite good, some of them. Some of them are a bit kind of like, really? Uh, in terms of adding up the numbers and it being a holy number. And if you add this and you add 10 and you take away 6 and you add your shoe size, then you end up with 153. It must be the Lord. Um, some of them are quite good. Some of them are quite powerful. The one that I kind of like the most is that, you know, fishermen are prone to exaggeration. How many fish did you catch? Oh, I caught loads. Were they big? Oh, yeah, they're enormous. I think fishermen often exaggerate. But instead of saying, John saying, there were loads of fish we caught. Yeah, John, were there loads, were they? Throwing it over the other side of that? He's like, no, there were 153. We counted them. There were so many. I think it's specific because it was a specific miracle. It was a real miracle. It wasn't just a bunch of fish. It was that many. More than they could barely carry in and the nets didn't break. But isn't it cool, just in this little thing, that when we try our best, even our best efforts and the things that we think we're good at, and we struggle, when Jesus directs our lives to work exactly where and how and when that he directs us, there can be incredible results and fruitfulness. We can struggle, we can graft, we can you know, even use all the skills that we've got. But when Jesus says, just do this little thing, when we're obedient to that, then amazing things can happen. When Jesus is put in charge, it's incredible what can happen. Verses 7 and 8. So anyway, as soon as John sees this unusual hall, he realises that the stranger on the shore is no stranger at all. Uh, and, and, and he recognises Jesus. I wonder whether there's a bit of rivalry between John and Peter, because John recognises who it is, and Peter, well, Peter's he's over the side of the boat before he even thinks about it, splashing his way wildly to the shore. He, he, he longs to go to this person. He, he senses who it is. I love the fact that even despite Peter's failure and his shame and his regret and his embarrassment, all the rest of it, there is something still within him that knows that Jesus is the answer. We see the old Peter, the Peter that got out of the boat when he started sinking in the waters. There is still something in him that pulls him towards Jesus. I suspect there's a real battle raging in him, and I, the enemy, I'm sure, is on the back of that. Jesus won't want me, I've let him down so badly, but I so want to go to him, but I, I know I've messed up. But he, I just long to be with him. And he does. His emotions and his heart gets the better of him, and he's over the side of the boat, and he's in the water, and he's running to, to, to this character. I love that about Jesus, uh, about Peter, and I suspect Jesus loves it about him too. I wonder, do you do that? Is there something in you that longs to rush to Jesus when everything inside you 
makes you crumble. You know, Sarah talked about that tonight in worship, didn't she? That is, that's the heart tug, to come aside and worship Jesus when things are hard. And Peter, I guess, when he gets there, well, I think he's probably lost for words. Here he is, dripping wet, facing the resurrected Jesus who he's denied close now. And he's sitting by the fire, probably, trying to dry himself. Wondering what Jesus is going to say to him. Because it feels like this is a moment where Jesus is going to say something. And maybe, I wonder if you've ever had those moments where you're confronted by God, where you've kind of hidden or you've run or circumstances have been busy, but there's a moment where you just know that God's kind of got you on your own, maybe in a church service, or maybe when you're on your own at home doing a quiet time, and you sense God there. And maybe it's a scary feeling slightly. But when God meets with you, it's an amazing, amazing thing but also a bit of a defining, life-changing moment. Um, Sarah, my Sarah, um, was in Spain recently, very recently, and um, do you want to, in 10 seconds, do you want to share your uh, testimony, healing testimony? It is relevant. You wanted to do it. Um, yeah, I, I think it was day two. I was really tired. I wanted to get away, honestly. And it was the day. Um, and I had a strange, I was very dizzy, I couldn't stand properly, I was in the refectory and I didn't feel right. And I could hear some whooshing and swishing in my ear. I got her to look down it and there was nothing to see. Uh, and I knew, because I'm a nurse, that it wasn't good. And I thought, oh no. I really don't want to go to a GP in the four days that we've got. <laughs> I want to be free from this so that I can enjoy the holiday. And I just knew it was uh, an attack. You know when sometimes you just, it's more than sickness and you just think it's an attack. I'm not having this. And I knew that if I could get a treatment, it would, we would have breakthrough. And I prayed for myself. I didn't talk to Ellie because she was scared of hearing that. So. Um, and I, I phoned Tim the next morning and said, could you just agree with me in prayer? And we prayed, and within hours, I just left my body. You could not So, ear infections can be really nasty, particularly when you're abroad, and you kind of were instantly healed from that ear infection. Now, the reason I say that is because, I don't know about you, there are some people in this church who've got incredible faith for healings. And we've seen incredible healings, and many of you here have kind of prayed for people and seen healings. And, and, and I know God can heal, but sometimes in areas of healing I haven't got much faith. For Sarah's ear, abroad in Spain, I, had, I just had absolute faith that God wanted to heal her. Now there's a reason for that. I've shared this story before, but it's important in the context of Peter finding restoration. Because I myself, when I was in Spain, when I was 18 years old, waiting for my A-level results... Uh, a time of stress, was on holiday with friends in Spain, right up in the mountains, middle of nowhere, and I got an ear infection from swimming in probably kind of unclean water. I had been a Christian not very long, probably about six months, eight months, spirit-filled, loved the Lord, knew the Lord, had experienced his power and the Holy Spirit, but I was in a growing sense of, of agony. Now, I appreciate I'm a man, so our understanding of what agony is relative, but it was really bad. 
uh, and it got worse. Now, I was kind of believing that God could heal, so I was praying in the morning, Lord, you're our healer, you're going to heal me. So I pray in the name of Jesus, got all of my friends who were Christians there with me to pray, breakthrough for healing. I mean, yes, Lord. Uh, nothing happened. And by the evening, it got a lot worse. I was now taking more painkillers than I was allowed to take because I couldn't get antibiotics in the middle of nowhere. It was getting awful. I mean, like, screamingly bad. I remember in the evening, you know, nearly crying because it was awful. And then the next, and I thought, Lord's going to heal me, and I'm going to proclaim, and I'm going to bind this, and break the power of that, and proclaim healing in this, and, and in the morning it'll be healed, and in the morning it was like five times worse, and it felt like the side of my head was falling off, and like giving birth was nothing, I'm sure, compared to this pain that I had in the side of my head, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and through that day it got worse, and that evening it got awful. It got to the night time. Um, the, the, which was the night before my A-levels were, were due to come out. And I had been struggling over where God was calling me and was I supposed to go to university? And if so, where? And the ones I'd been offered, I didn't really like. And, you know, I'd been like, bold saying, oh, the Lord will lead me. The Lord, God is good. He's merciful. He's kind. He's going to lead me to the right place and I'll take over the world and I'll be healed. And I woke up in the middle of the night in utter agony. Um, it was about three o'clock in the morning. I went and sat on the bed and I sat there and I said to God, God, if you were really there and you really loved me, you would heal me. You say you're a healer. Well, you've done absolutely nothing and it's got worse. And I've been really good and I've prayed and I've told everyone you're going to heal me. And I went on and on. And I, I mean, I properly railed against God. And, um, you know, I'm ashamed at what I was saying. But I was angry. I was scared. I was afraid and I was in pain and all of those things together just messed with me really and I let rip and after I ran out of things to say which is after about probably 10 minutes of ranting at God in the lounge at 4 o'clock in the morning I just ran out of words to say and in that moment God the king of the entire universe left the rest of the universe and went and walked into the room that I was in. I felt the presence of God like nothing I've ever felt before. The raw holiness of God. I won't tell you what I said, but it was along the lines of, oh my goodness me. Because I was so, so scared. I mean, like, properly scared. I could feel, I can't describe it, but I could feel God's presence very much in the room. Everything went utterly silent, and it was like I was the only person in the universe. And as that happened, I can only describe it like I heard a whistle, like one of those penny whistles. And the pain went completely from my ear and my head. And that was when I got really scared. (laughs) And I sat there in silence thinking, I want to die. Oh, God's going to kill me. After what felt like a lifetime of waiting in complete silence, God spoke to me. And I think it changed my life. What basically God said to me was, Tim, I am the good father and I can heal you just like that. And I'm able to do that. But what I'm looking for is a relationship with you. I want to be your father and I want you to be my son. I don't want to be some distant God that you turn to like a candy machine when you have need and then you go off back to your life. And you run around being really busy and calling yourself spiritual. But you don't really know me or meet with me or know me 
in the way that I long to know you. I just want to be your father. And I kind of sat there and started sobbing. And eventually I fell asleep and I woke up in the morning and, and I knew I was different. I think for me it was, a moment of, it was a moment of redemption, but it was a moment of restoration to who I was supposed to be. I'd become a Christian, I'd experienced the Holy Spirit, I was new in my faith, I was passionate about God. But I wasn't really the son that the father always intended me to be. I was a bit like a spoiled brat who kind of really enjoyed this new exciting power and the Holy Spirit and God and people and church. And Whereas my father just wanted me to be his boy. It was a defining moment, but it was a scary moment. And my sense for Peter in this moment, it was another of those divine appointments that Jesus set it up to get Peter there to do business, to bring transformation to him. Jesus had him just where he wanted to. I don't think Peter knew what to say. He just sat there in silence and eventually, after what must have been a very awkward breakfast for Peter, Jesus eventually turns to him and begins this process of reaching out to him and restoring him, redeeming him, bringing this restoration. Verses 15 to 19, Jesus asks this question, Do you love me more than these? And we don't actually know quite what he's saying there. It could be one of three things. He could have been saying to him, do you love me more than these men love me? He might have been saying, do you love me more than them, more than you love them? Do you love me most? Or he could have been pointing at the net saying, do you love me more than these? We don't know. And I guess there are different things in different moments of our lives that maybe God may be saying to us. My sense is it's possibly, interestingly, the first one. Do you love me more than these? Because remember what Peter has said. They may abandon you, Lord, but I will never leave you. And it's like Jesus saying, well, you said that you were going to love me more than these love me. But your life hasn't really been that, Peter, has it? You've loved yourself more. You gave into fear and gave away. Peter had boasted so much about how loyal he was to Jesus and how he'd follow him no matter what. God always intended to Peter to be this great church leader who would lead people and lead the church and shape the church. But there was so much pride in him and ego and self and that somehow God knew that he was called to lead the church but there was all this stuff that got in the way and God was trying to restore him to what he always was supposed to be, this great leader who wasn't arrogant or egotistical, but who was a man who was humble and pure of heart. God needed to restore him back to that. So Jesus asked him again, remember how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. And what do we have here? Well, Peter is asked by Jesus each time. Jesus says, do you love me? And asks him three times. Three times trying to undo that brokenness in Peter's life. In the end, you remember it saw it, saw it said that Peter gets upset. He's like, You know, I love you, Lord. It's interesting, when Jesus says, Do you love me? he uses the Greek word agapeo, which is a deep, passionate, deep love. Whereas Peter says, Yes, of course I love you, he responds with the word filio, which is more affectionate love. It is love, but it's not as deep as the love that Jesus speaks of. The final time, interestingly, that Jesus asked Peter, he asks with the word filio, do you love me? To which Peter says, yeah, I do, I do, I do. 
Then he tells Peter what kind of death he's going to lead, uh, that's going to die. Tradition says that Peter was crucified with his wife upside down because he didn't feel worthy to suffer in the same way that his master did. Church history says that. So, as I finish, what about us? I love that verse 25. Did you hear Victoria read it? Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that will be written. So I want to ask about the book of your life. What does it look like? If you were to flick back through it, there will be some great moments, some moments of joy. There may well be moments of shame or pain or regret. And you may well have even been able to offer those to Jesus and you know his forgiveness and his mercy and the pages flick on and you can move on to new parts of the chapter of your life. But something still inside you every now and then goes back to look at that page where you can see what's written and it kind of is still there. It still shapes you or shakes you or traps you and it calls you back and it calls you back and it's like an elastic band that won't quite let go. I believe that God doesn't simply want to redeem and and kind of save and cleanse. Somehow God is able to rewrite the book of our lives. I think Peter thought, because I've messed up at this point in my life, God will still love me and use me, but he can never use me in the way that he intended to before this thing happened. Whereas True restoration that God has for us is about taking us back, not just to that point, but actually back to what we were always intended to be in God's perfect dream. When you were in your mother's womb, he had a plan for you, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. He had a plan, and actually God is able to totally restore back to that plan. That's a work of his spirit. He's able to do that. He's the master builder, the master craftsman, able to restore us in the image of his perfect design. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who do what is right. I sense that verse for some of you here. God says, I don't withhold good things from you, for you seek me. I want to give you good things. You might feel you deserve less than that because of failures, but I want to give you good things, more than you can imagine. His mercies are new every morning. Psalm 103, 1-5 says this, and I'm going to finish with this. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I want to pray for us. My sense is this, maybe it's for one person, maybe it's for a few of us here, that God says he wants to totally restore you, not just put you back to how you were before your mistakes, but actually restore you into the perfect design and purpose that he had for you. Nothing is ever too late. No point is beyond redemption, that God can't undo it, and bring glorious good out of it, and give you better than you could have imagined before, lots of people could testify to that here in this church. God's a God of transformation. God's a God of redemption and restoration to give something glorious and wonderful. So if you've got circumstances in your life where you're struggling, and you think, I wish I could undo this. I wish this could be changed. 
the amazing thing is that with God, he can and can give you better than you could have imagined before. Better than what you had before because God's plan is to bless you and to prosper you. No good thing does he withhold from you, from those who seek to do what's right. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray um, just for us all now as we draw to a close. Thank you that you're the God that redeems our lives. You come to us in a place of brokenness where we don't know you and you call us into friendship with God and you begin to bring healing and restoration. You begin to speak truth to us and you give us that righteousness of Jesus. Because of your resurrection, Jesus, we can know the love of the Father we're called into relationship. But your desire is to take us from one stage of glory to the next. Lord, we know that we're all works in progress. But I sense for one or two or maybe a few of us here, there are certain chapters in the book of our lives that cause us to stumble, that cause us to kind of go back to it over and over again. And no matter how much we feel we've kind of free, it still seems to shout and ripples go out and echo from it. But tonight, Lord, you're wanting to remind us that you are the God of full restoration. That you want to restore to us the years the locusts have eaten. You want to repay and give back to better than we could before, like you did for Job, able to do more than he had before, better than he could have dreamed of, because that was always your plan to bless. And so for each of us in this room, may we know the Father's hand of blessing upon us to restore and redeem to restore and redeem that which has been stolen, to put back and to put back even better than we can imagine before, Father, so that we can be obedient to you and follow you as we look to you, that we can serve you with fullness and, like Peter, have a restored life set apart, called to serve you, to serve your people and bring you honour and glory and fullness, Lord. Thank you that you are the God of transformation and the God of breakthrough. We say yes to you in Jesus' name.